everyone. Welcome to Real World Parenting, tips and scripts for parents on roads less traveled. I'm Dr. Laura Anderson, a child and family psychologist, and I'm glad you're here. As you settle in to listen, let me reassure you that you are in the right place. If you're a loving parent looking for answers and encouragement, and maybe even a chuckle amidst hard things. If you're a loving parent who's raising a child on a journey different from your own as a child, and are seeking a compass as you navigate uncharted waters. This is the place for you if you get the theory of parenting advice you keep hearing, but for the love of chocolate and curry and all other nearly perfect things, that theory never quite works as planned with your actual children. Finally, you are in exactly the right place if you're a therapist or clinician who works with kids, teens, and families. My intention is that these episodes will deepen your work and change lives. So in this intro, I get two to three minutes here to boil down 30 years of work in my psychology offices and my experience as a mom in the trenches and let you know what I'll offer with this podcast. I almost called it Lessons from Our Living Rooms or Couch Conversations because my offerings will be things I have learned and keep learning from the vantage point of both my living room couch and my therapy office couch. The aim of this podcast is to offer hope, support, wisdom, and experience in community, to provide clinicians a window into what our recommendations actually mean for real families in real life. We will talk all things kid and teen related and shine a spotlight on families navigating identities related to race, gender, and adoption. We will explore common child and adolescent mental health and wellness related topics. The hope is to leave you with a greater understanding of your child's needs and a, you got this, energy. Episodes will also feature actual practical tips and answers to questions including, well, what do I say when? And well, what do I do when? So that you feel equipped to handle the day-to-day parenting puzzles we face. So pour yourself a cuppa or lace up some shoes or hide in your busy parent bathroom for a bit and join me for head and heart conversations about loving and living with children walking past less often traveled. Have I mentioned I'm glad you're here? I trust that you'll be glad. Hi, everyone. Welcome to this episode. And I am really glad that you are all here. It is my honor to welcome Mark Haglin today to speak with me about adoption and intersecting identities and It is an especial pleasure for me because I have been following Mark's work for years. Uh, He's influenced my family and the family of many, many others through his um, selfless commitment to helping adoptive parents learn and show up more fully for their kids. Mark moderates a really fabulous Facebook group called Transracial Adoption Perspectives and He also is the author of a new book, The Extraordinary Journey, The Lifelong Path of the Transracial Adoptee, which I'm thrilled to pass along to folks as well. So I can't wait. Thank you, Mark, for joining us today. Uh, It's a pleasure and an honor. Thank you very much, Laura, for thinking of me. Yeah, this is, I always, it's, it's such a treat. I just get to sit down and talk about stuff that is close to my heart and other people's hearts and see if we can just just keep getting this writer for, for our folks out there. So today we have the pleasure of kind of talking about this thing called intersecting identities. And when I was thinking about what I wanted to do, you know, right off the bat, it's, I would sort of put to you, how, how do you define the phrase 
intersecting identities. Yeah. Tell folks what that means. <laughs> well, on a really, really basic level, intersecting identities means you have more than one, right? And that there is some significant um, intersection where your identities um, connect with and possibly even conflict with or uh, become complex with one another. Uh, I have a number of identities. My core ones are I am male, I am a person of color, I'm an Asian, East Asian, I am a transracial and international adoptee, I am an immigrant, I am a cisgender gay man, uh, I am a gay parent, I'm a gay dad. Um, I, I also do actually include journalists as one of my identities, yeah. but we, we could talk about that later. <laughs> Um, and, um, all those different identities hold complexity, but when they're put together, they hold a lot of complexity. And because I have several identities, I've had, uh, perhaps an even more complex journey than some people, although everyone has a complex journey. Um, <clears throat> For me, being both an adult transracial adoptee and, L and an LGBTQ person has been immensely impactful. And I'll be glad to share that with you too. Yeah, I, I mean, thank you for that. That is a really, for folks who, who are beginning to wrap their minds more and more around the way the, the, these core pieces of identity that you listed shape how we navigate the world, how the world responds to us. They shape um, the way caregivers interact with us, the way community interacts with us, school experiences, dating, teams, orchestral <laughs> participation. They, there's so much that the world puts upon us based on all of these things that we move with. So what do you think people what do you think they get wrong with folks with intersecting identity? Like what have been some of the dilemmas of, of navigating that list yeah. of identities that you pose? Well, well, let me explain a little bit by telling my own story, but I love to quote um, a, 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 a human rights activist, and I apologize because I don't remember her name, but years ago I read an interview with a black lesbian feminist activist so she is black, she is gay, and she's a woman. And she was asked, well, which, which of your identities is most important? <laughs> and she said, well, it's not like I get to go out of my house and leave any of my identities behind, right? Like they're always with me. That's true for me too. Um, <clears throat> let me explain a little bit by telling you about my personal story. So I was born in South Korea in 1960. I was adopted along with my twin brother, um, by white American parents of Norwegian and German descent. That's my Norwegian name. And we were raised in Milwaukee, Wisconsin in the 1960s and 70s. Um, the south side of Milwaukee, when I was growing up, was overwhelmingly white. It was near total whiteness. I, the entire time I was growing up, I felt like a Martian, and I felt very intense and profound differentness. 
Then what happened when I was a freshman in college, undergraduate, I came out as gay. And I realized that in getting to know other gay people at that time, that they had felt incredibly different too inside, even if people couldn't see it outside. And I realized, oh, okay. So that contributed to my differentness. I had other reasons for differentness too, because my twin and I were very intellectual. We always were, I still are, I still am. So we didn't fit in with the other kids in that way either. So what happened was when I was an undergraduate, then a, a graduate student here in Chicago, I came to Chicago to attend the Medill School of Journalism at Northwestern University and get my master's here. I started out really exploring my gay identity first. Uh, there were a lot of reasons for that. One of them because being that I was a young gay man and I was sexually active and I was trying to figure that all out. The other reason was there was absolutely no collective group awareness of transracial adoptee identity at that time. There were no groups. I mean, there was really nothing. The first publications started coming out in the late 1990s. And by that time, of course, I was already in my 30s. Uh, I was asked to participate in an anthology called Outsiders Within, which first came out 2000-ish. So around the late 1990s, early 2000s, a literature of transracial adoption created by transracial adoptees emerged. And I was privileged to be a part of that. I've contributed to several anthologies and now I've written my own full book. We began gathering together as adult transracial adoptees, supporting each other and accelerating our journeys as adoptees, as transracial adoptees. So essentially out of necessity, I integrated my gay identity first. And also growing up in whiteness, I was totally cut off from Asian-ness and POC-ness. And so when I was a young adult here in Chicago, it was the first time I began to really meet any large numbers of people of color. I had known a few transracial adoptees growing up, fellow Korean adoptees, but that was, you know, it was a, a few drops in the ocean. So I've been on this dual journey. And at times, one identity has been more in the forefront than the other. Now, having lived all these years, <laughs> I'll be 61 this month, at the core of intersectionality for the person who has multiple identities is the lifelong sensation, realization, and ultimately, hopefully, integration of the different identities. 20 years ago, I also became a parent, and I was an unusual parent because I'm a gay dad. And I've, I've co-parented my daughter, who is biological to me, uh, with a friend. So many different identities. And one of the challenge, core challenges is we face interface with different people from different identity groups. 
So I've interfaced with heterosexual people of color, including people from my own birth ethnicity, which is Korean, who don't understand gayness at all or LGBTQ-ness. And I've interacted with a lot of gay white people who don't understand POC-ness. Um, so it, it takes a long time to, to work all these things out. It takes years and years. And now in 2021, transracial adoptees who have intersectional identities at least have the advantage that there are more resources than there were when I was a young adult, right? And so they can accelerate their journeys potentially faster. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. And I'm, and because it really is, it does, among the identities you listed, the, the combination of that triangle of adoptee, person of color, LGBTQ identified person, at any given point from any angle, the people you're interacting with are going to have a have differing degrees of competence and, and cultural humility around those, each of those things, adoption, race, and gender. And so it, it must have felt like a pretty constant, I'm guessing, like a vetting process for you. And also how, how did that work in terms of narrative burden? That phrase meaning like, how often were you put in a position where you felt as if you had to Explain myself. <laughs> Some part of All that. the time. All the time. By the way, I, I want to make sure to credit Sumitra Dorner, and I credit her in my book. So Sumitra Dorner is an Indian-American adoptee. She was born in India and raised in the United States. And she coined the term narrative burden. Yeah. And she brought it forward, yeah, at an international adoptee gathering that we had in Washington, D.C. in 2003. So I always want to credit Sumitra, and um, I credit her in my book. And I interviewed her about that because it's narrative burden is such an amazingly wonderful term. It, it's 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 like a lifesaver, you know, like white privilege. It's a it's a term <laughs> where, it, it, just like white privilege, the first time I heard it, I instantly grasped it. Right? It's like, oh, I was looking for that. So yeah, there's this constant sifting. There's intersecting. Or there's interacting with people from one's various identity groups who only share a part of one's identity, that's part of the challenge, right? Like how many LGBTQ transracial adoptees of color are there? Actually, there are many more than you'd think. <laughs> um, and even then we're all, we're all individuals, right? right? But it is fascinating to share, when I, when I do encounter someone who is LGBTQ and is a transracial adoptee of color, wow, do we have a lot of lot to talk about, right? It's like, we could talk for like hours and hours and hours. And even though we'll be individuals and we will have had possibly quite different experiences, there will still be common threads. And one of the challenges for me was until I started meeting fellow adult transracial adoptees at gatherings that started, the first organized ones were among fellow Korean adoptees beginning in 2000. There's a whole backstory, but we'll just start right there. That was amazingly accelerating for me. Um, 
I went to my first, we call them create and adapting mini gatherings. I went to my first mini gathering in September, 2000. And there were about 65 people in the room. We started with a dinner on a Friday evening and it was a weekend long thing. I remember walking into the room that in itself was mind blowing. Then I was sitting at dinner with total strangers and we were finishing each other's stories. The way I describe it now, I mean, my head just basically exploded all over the room. <laughs> and, uh, and I put it back on. Uh, and what I say now is, you know, I felt that I was a Martian who had landed in a spaceship the entire time growing up. And I had happened upon a convention of Martians and spaceships. It was the first time I ever felt I had an actual peer group. That was revolutionary for me. And it tremendously accelerated my process of integrating identity. Now, over time, I also met fellow LGBTQ transracial adoptees. So that really helped a lot, too. So basically, it's a, it's a, a constant process of integration, figuring out who one is, where one fits, if anywhere. And by this time, I mean, first of all, when I went to that first mini gathering in September two, 2000, I was a month away from being 40 years old. So I was no spring chicken already. <laughs> and I'm far less springy a chicken now. But what was wonderful was that very quickly, my, my thought processes and my overall process of integration of identity accelerated. So that was a wonderful gift. Yeah, and, and I want to sort of highlight what you said, Mark, as for, for parents or clinicians who are working with families to really, I love the, this, the, the, the way that the Martian analogy captures what that experience is like. And so it's beautiful to be able to, to, to imagine what that would be like. And yet I really want to reiterate that that's for, for a lot of adoptive parents, white adoptive parents, we were raised in more white areas than not white areas. We were used to being in the sea of folks who reflected us in ways. Um, the majority of people are heterosexual who are, who are adopting now, right? So many of us didn't feel as if we were swimming upstream in that regard. So there was a lot of things that, that transracially adoptive parents, um, if they're heterosexual and white, are, are just just taking for granted as part of the journey, right? So to That's hear right. a, a transracial adoptee say, like, I didn't, I couldn't find my place to rest. I couldn't find Right, my exactly, yeah, my peer group. Yeah, and I think one of the things that was so totally amazing for me and has continued to be, whenever I go to a gathering where there are fellow transracial adoptees, it reminds me, and I, I've, I've been to many, many now, so I've been very fortunate, that something clicks right away. You know, we have our individual stories, of course, we're individual people, but there's something that happens, there's an energy that is so normalizing and that is so nurturing and so mental health improving, <laughs> right, and enhancing, where it's like, oh, I'm not crazy, right? Like, the feelings I've had for example, 
and I share this very openly. I talk about it in the book and I share it in transracial adoption perspectives. And now I'm actually involved in groups in three languages. That's <laughs> um, right. You, how many languages do you speak, Mark? Well, it, it's complicated. <laughs> okay. I, I use seven languages, but I really only speak four fluently, but I'm really working on the other three. Wow. And that's that, a start. I want that to alone, that's a whole, I mean, wow. You're yeah, now no, no, no. doing in these groups, so you're open about this thing in several groups. Oh, right. <laughs> right. So one of the key things, and I'm very careful in how I frame what I share. I try not to speak for other adoptees. Sometimes I will say many adoptees have had this experience or most adoptees have had this experience. Well, here's an interesting thing. Every single adult transracial adoptee with whom I've ever talked about what I'm gonna share with you has had a similar experience, which is really significant, I think. And that is every single adoptee I've talked to has had really suffered in terms of their physical self-image. And I've been working through it. I'm, I'm about as fine as I'll be. But part of what fuels my actual sense of mission in participating in all of these groups and writing and being interviewed and is this tremendous sense of mission around my not wanting the littlest transracial adoptees to grow up the way I did. And that is even with very loving, good parents and wonderful parents. And yet the racial marginalization was totally devastating to me. Yeah, no, and I appreciate that. And I think it's so interesting that we have this, even that you, that you feel compelled as so often and I listen to adoptees speak, you feel compelled to make sure that 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 you're appreciating your parents and right like they were good people and they and they meant well but but and right it's it's powerful yeah. enough to say that that mirroring piece is so important they got so many things right and yet this was a thing they could have gotten righter they could have made conscious choices had they understood Potentially, although there were zero resources at the time my parents adopted us, like zero. There was nothing. There wasn't even a single article on how to do this. So I really do not hold them accountable. And and the other reason I mentioned that I had good and loving parents is because I constantly get this sense from some white transracially adopted parents that they think that love is enough. It's the whole love is enough myth. And they're like, well, we're loving parents little Susie will never come to harm. Well, yeah, she probably will. Right. And yes, we need loving parents, full stop. But having loving parents will not prevent a lot of the damage that transracially adopted children experience. So I say, imagine that you're having coffee with a friend and uh, you're telling your friend about your, your daughter, my little Susie, and she's three or four. And you say to your friend, you know, I just think it would be absolutely traumatic if little Susie realized she could be hurt in traffic. She could be hurt if she got hit by a car. So I'm not going to share anything about traffic safety with her. I am not going to even tell her that there's any danger. I'm just going to let her run out into the middle of traffic and be hit by a car. And then... When she's in 
the ICU with all her bones broken and internal organs punctured. I'm going to pull up a chair to the side of her bed and we're going to have a nice conversation about traffic safety. And what's really great about this is parents are like, oh, (laughs) oh. And what I try to explain to them is, and again, when I was a young child, no one knew anything. I really mean that. Like we were in the first wave of transracial adoption. No one understood anything. And I was growing up in whiteness. So my parents did not understand. They prepared me and my twin brother about racial identity before we went to school. So we knew what we were, but I experienced racism as a very intense trauma when I went to kindergarten. We didn't have preschool when I went to kindergarten. And the most, I try to explain to parents that the most loving thing that you can possibly do is to prepare your child for racism. And this is why it's, this is one of the areas where it's so hard because white people who grew up in whiteness don't get this until you explain it to them. This is why I, I recommend Robin D'Angelo's White Fragility over and over and over and over and over and over ad infinitum because we needed a nice white lady to explain to white people in ways that they can understand what racism actually is. That's powerful. And it, and it really does highlight how conditioned white people are not to talk about race and to see it as this huge be- racism, to see it as this enormous thing that doesn't have a beginning, middle or end or. And that actually leads to, I know you wanted to talk about intersectionality. So one of the interesting things that happened to me as a gay man is after I came out and I began to socially integrate into the gay male world in Chicago. Why was that interesting? Because I realized that as an Asian person, I was being sexually fetishized. And I had to navigate that. Now, on the heterosexual side, every single female Asian adoptee I know has been fetishized. All of us who are people of color end up becoming objectified and fetishized when we enter into dating and romantic relationships. And that's this huge minefield. So then you add the intersectionality of being gay or bisexual to that, and it gets super complicated, right? I was very, very, very lucky. I'd been with my partner for 35 years. I was very lucky to find someone, and he's white, to find, to meet my life partner, who we started interacting immediately as people. So there, there's a lot of complexity there, right? Especially for someone like me, because I grew up in a very working class, lower middle class, white social environment in Milwaukee. And then... I came out as an undergrad, but then really had my first real experiences as a gay person when I came to Chicago. And I discovered that white men expected me to be a geisha. That was rather shocking because <laughs> it's the last thing that I am, right? Like I don't, I couldn't relate to that whole bizarre framing at all. 
complex to interact with people from your birth race as well. So if you're not Asian enough or Latinx enough or black enough or whatever enough, learn absolutely please uh, explore the literature of transracial adoption created by transracial adoptees. If there's a single thing you can do, it's that. And now there are some of us who are LGBTQ who are speaking up too. Do you think, as I was thinking about some of that, and I've certainly heard stories too around, one, I hear lots of transracial adoptive parents who not only tell themselves love is enough, but tell themselves that 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 story of isolation and struggling to find their people isn't going to be their kid's story because they seem fine, right? They seem fine now. And that transition to college when they're out from under the umbrella or, or work life away from home, whatever the transition is, when they leave the protective umbrella of their family's whiteness and the knownness in the community and they're having to navigate all the, the codes and rules and cultural references of of their yep. racial mirrors. And then when you add the layer of LGBTQness or gender expansiveness in some form where where because different different cultural groups have some norms around gender presentation <laughs> and behavior. And so if if I know certainly that families have had the experience of people even with younger kids, uh, people who mirror their child of color's race assuming that a boy is acting in an effeminate manner because white parents haven't known how to teach him to be a black man or man or to do Asian maleness the right way. Right. Like there's this assumption that, that there's an incompetence racially that has also led to these behaviors that are unexpected. And so, and so then there are misses well, and, and it's super it's super complicated because generally speaking, and this is going to be a huge generalization, but generally speaking, in middle class white American culture, there is more of a space for gender expansiveness than in black, Asian, or Latinx cultures, right? So you get into this really complicated situation where as a parent, you want to support your child. You want to su- support their differentness, frankly. And let's, let's support differentness. Let's yeah. honor it. But your child's birth culture does not honor it, or at least not as much. So one of the important things there is you, you have to understand your child, you have to learn as much as you can about your child's birth culture. So you can help your child as they move into teenage years, young adulthood and adulthood. White transracially adopted parents, whether domestic or international, learn as much as you possibly can about the complexities and nuances of your child's birth culture so that you can help your child, right? You do, I don't want you to trash your birth culture at all which was the norm 50 years ago. But I, don't, I also don't want you to idealize it to the point where when your child is a young adult, interacts with the birth culture, they're shocked and devastated. And it happens a lot. Every culture on earth has good and bad. Yep. Certainly ours has good and bad. <laughs> and I'll give you an example from my own life 
that is related to intersectionality. Having to come to terms with the fact that as a gay man and an international Korean adoptee going back to South Korea was very complicated. I didn't expect to be accepted. I don't think I was accepted. And it's okay, and it has to be okay. But, I mean, different cultures, homophobia presents in different ways. So in South Korea, unless you're dealing with very conservative Christian South Koreans, who are about a quarter of the population, it's not so much about religion, it's all about face. Everything in East Asia is about face, face and shame. And, and so the typical situation is gay men in South Korea, even if the family knows, they pressure them to conform by getting married and having children heterosexually. And then they typically have a love nest or whatever you want to call it, a separate apartment where they meet their lover. And what's funny about that is there isn't generally moral judgment on that. It's all about what people will think. In Italian, there's this term bella figura, which, and bella figura means beautiful face. And it's all about like, it doesn't matter what happens inside the house. It's just, you have to have a good facade, right? Mm -hmm. So being a gay adult Korean adoptee meant my having to figure out what my interaction was going to, how to frame my interaction with my birth country and birth culture. I've, I've been back three times now, 2002, 2006, and 2008, and having to protect myself and honor myself so that I'm not then psychologically injured by my birth culture. <laughs> right, which is it's, such meaning. I mean, it's that's a really huge hurt. It's like a, a series of rejections, right? If you if you in terms right. of it's a it's a powerful judgment place. Right. It's a it's a pe I don't want to say pedestalization because that trivializes it, but when you think about the potential of that nesting or a space or some important piece to come to or to integrate yeah. and it's and if this other equally core part of you is not going to be okay exactly. with this this thing that you right. wanted to grasp and know and be known by, then that's a whole other... Yeah, and so it's, it adds more layers because we can be rejected by our birth cultures in more ways. Yeah, well, <laughs> no, I think that's fair. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and so, you know, all... Let, let, let me do the international part. All international adoptees can experience feelings of rejection when they visit or even interact with people from their birth countries or birth cultures. For those of us who are LGBTQ, it's that much more complicated, right? And depending on what the culture's attitudes are towards gay people, bisexual people, or transgender people, or people who are gender expansive or non-conforming, that makes it really complicated. I feel so strongly that adoptees need to honor themselves, need to care for themselves and nurture themselves, and accept that they're, they're going to be different no matter what. 
you know. There are international adoptees who are able to find some kind of connection and a place to get into their birth culture where they can be accepted and they can feel the acceptance. And that's great if they can. Um, I mean, I know one uh, adult Korean adoptee who is a, a gay man, as I am, and he has done well. You know, he he feels accepted by Koreans. He's not fluent in Korean, but he has conversational Korean. And the homophobia in South Korea has not really uh, traumatized him. Mm. And that's great. I'm, I'm, right. I'm glad for him. But it, it, all of this is very complex. I just want people to understand the complexity. Well, and I think, too, as we look at kind of wrapping up, I could talk for hours about it, but thinking about what are the benefits, right? So how would you say, uh, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but there's a tremendous like opportunity for reflection, for, for um, cognitive flexibility, for like, what are the, what are the benefits of, of being a person who has learned to navigate these things with struggle along the way? Or, or, or how does adoption inform the LGBT? You said a little bit about that, but what else what, yeah. what can parents know about how to support and how to make sure their kids are getting into spaces and how, what, what are your thoughts about? Well, I mean, on a really basic level, having identity complexity has made me a more compassionate person. I think it's made me a better person, a more decent person. Um, I think that what adoptive parents should completely understand is that if you have a child who has identity complexity, um, maybe we should call it identity abundance. I don't know to make it really positive. But like if that. you have a child, do you good, yes. good, call it identity abundance, that they're going to be peeling a lot more layers off their onion. Their onion is going to have more layers, right? Instead of a five-layer onion, it'll be a 12-layer onion. Yeah. And it's okay. That's okay. But there are no shortcuts, right? And it's funny for me because, I mean, I walk around, I navigate the world with several identities, and that's just how it is. And there are times when one identity comes to the fore, to the forefront more than another, simply because of this circumstance I'm in, right, at the moment. Um, and again, that's okay. It, you know, it's okay. But there is, there is just more complexity. I, I think that the average heterosexual, cisgender, able-bodied, native-born, meaning not immigrant, white American <laughs> does not get the stuff. Yeah. Um, they've never had to, no one's ever questioned why they're in a particular place. They've never been 
othered. You know, that's another important concept, othered and othering. I mean, I've been othered like a billion times. And, you know, I had two great aspirations when I was a child. I absolutely failed at one and absolutely succeeded at the other. The first one was to be like everyone else. And I failed spectacularly. Oh, my gosh. But the second one, I succeeded spectacularly at. I left Milwaukee and I never went back. I mean, to visit, but, but never to live. And I realized that my the, envi- the social environment that I grew up in I, was toxic for me as a person with these identities. We talk about this all the time in groups, like how racist are the people around your family? And the thing that I try to explain to people, and my parents were amazingly non-racist for the time and place in which they grew up, but all of their relatives were pretty much in line with all the other white people I knew growing up. And they were basically racist. I mean, not... When white people hear the term racist, they, of course, they're thinking of Ku Klux Klan wizards burning crosses on lawns and wearing their outfits. And that's not what we mean as POC. We're usually talking about day-to-day microaggressions, right? One of the things that stands out to me too, Mark, and as I talk to parents is, is yes, there may be, chal- there will most likely be challenges around where are the spaces that kids who are adoptees, LGBTQ+, or gender expansive or questioning in any way, and people of color, there, it, it will be complicated in the interface between the changing groups around them, and it is on parents to do the work to find, to find, to look. There are spaces for LGBTQ plus youth. Find the ones that, are, that do include more kids of color. It matters. They may not be as public sometimes. Some of the most public spaces tend to be, in my experience, it plants more right. and yeah. more white in terms of the, the LGBTQ kid right. stuff. And, and, and yet there are spaces and places and it matters to try to do the extra leg work to find or create spaces where kids who are navigating both can be. And, and if you are taking a, a child of yours into and you're listening to what all the adoptees are saying about making sure your child has the opportunity to interface with their their same racial mirror culture that you that you also don't. Um, repel and hide quickly if there are misunderstandings around gender or adoption or there will be pain in the process you cannot expect a flawless uh you know integration when identities and understanding about identities are bumping up against one another and so if you retreat and hurt your child is going to need to do that much more work later on their own exactly exactly All right. Well, thanks for listening today. Just a quick note here at the end to say I am so glad you joined and I hope you are too. And if you'd like to connect with me more, come take a look at my website, www.drlauraanderson.com. There you can join my newsletter, keep in touch and find out what is in the works. You can also join me for coffee and conversation uh, on Facebook at Common Cord Psychology Services. So check me out those places and I look forward to further connection. I'm glad you were here today.